Hello, and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all of my original listeners, welcome back. To those new to the show, welcome. I am a storytelling historian with a great love for the Plantagenet dynasty, as I am a direct descendant to Geoffrey of Anjou via my paternal line on my grandmother Carter's side. I descend through Diana Skipwith, daughter of Sir Henry Skipwith and Amy Kemp. Diana married Captain Thomas Carter. They immigrated to the Americas in 1650, settling in Barford in Lancaster County, Virginia. So with that said, please like and download the show as it helps other listeners learn about the show. If you wish to support this podcast, there is a link for you to do so, and it would be much appreciated as it would help with costs of maintaining the website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find the podcast as well as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode. Edward of Windsor, of the House of Plantagenet, was born at Windsor Castle in the county of Berkshire, England, on the 13th of November, 1312. His father was King Edward II of England, who has gone down in history as one of England's weaker and less effective monarchs. Edward's mother Isabella was the daughter of King Philip IV of France, and is also known to history by the nickname the She-Wolf of France. She was an intelligent, manipulative and ruthless woman, who would later turn against her husband Edward II and invade England with her lover Roger Mortimer, almost bringing down the Plantagenet dynasty and her own son's inheritance in the process. Prince Edward was a handsome, athletic and intelligent young man and excelled, unlike his father, at the kingly sports such as jousting and hunting, resulting in the nobility and the population placing great hope in him for the future. Edward's grandfather was Edward I of England, or Edward the Longshanks as he was known, due to the fact that he was over six feet tall, which was gigantic by medieval standards. During Edward I's reign, he secured the final conquest of Wales, subduing the Welsh princes, and also notoriously invaded Scotland. He was a powerful, intelligent and ruthless king, who had become accustomed to battle from an early age and helped his father, Henry III, to secure the final victory over Simon de Montfort's forces in the Battle of Evesham in 1265, and later joining the Ninth Crusade against the Mamluks. As is often the case, overbearing and authoritative fathers often produce sons who are the opposite to them in nature, and Edward II is a good example of this. Medieval kings were expected to take part in activities such as jousting and hunting, as well as being expert in warfare. Edward II, however, did not take after his father in terms of his nature, preferring the company of men to women and enjoying activities such as boat building and archery, which were considered beneath the aristocracy. He also proved to be particularly inept at warfare culminating in his disastrous defeat to the Scots at the Battle of Bannockburn in 1314. This greatly weakened his position as monarch, and eventually, after a famine throughout England, 
and a rebellion by his barons, he slowly lost influence and power throughout the country. Then, in 1325, the French king, Charles IV, demanded that Edward pay homage to him for the Duchy of Aquitaine. The English kings had owned large portions of France since the Plantagenet dynasty came to power in the reign of Henry II. Henry II was not just the King of England, but also the Regent of Normandy and Anjou in France. He then married Eleanor of Aquitaine, meaning that he now controlled not just England, but the vast majority of France itself. This became known as the Angevin Empire, and is the reason that subsequent English monarchs laid claim to large portions of France. However, it was often the case that French monarchs required English kings to pay homage to them for their lands in France. But after receiving such a request, Edward II was afraid to leave England and pay homage to the French king, as he had many enemies on the continent. Instead, he made his son Prince Edward the Duke of Aquitaine, and sent him to France along with his wife Isabella, who was King Charles IV's sister. Whilst in France, Isabella arranged the marriage of Edward to Philippa of Hainault, who was the daughter of William I, Count of Hainault. Isabella then started an affair with Roger Mortimer, a powerful marcher lord, and they both, with French backing, then invaded England in 1326 and seized power. Prince Edward was then crowned King Edward III of England on the 1st of February 1327. King Edward II was then deposed, imprisoned and dispatched in September of the same year. Some say he was smothered, but a particularly gruesome account written after his death states that he was held down whilst a trumpet-like instrument was forced into his anus, followed by a red-hot poker being thrust into his bowels. This is now considered by many modern historians to be a false account of his death and was probably due to his apparent homosexual relationship with one of his favourites, Piers Gaveston, some years earlier. Edward II's reign was in many ways an education for Edward III in what not to do to be a successful king, and young Edward would take after his grandfather much more than his father as a monarch. Although Edward III was now king of England, Isabella's lover, Roger Mortimer, was the de facto ruler of England, his popularity slowly declined throughout the country, particularly after he lost to the Scots at the Battle of Stanhope Park, and was forced afterwards to sign a peace treaty with them. Edward and Philippa of Hainault were then married in January 1328, and then went on two years later to have a son, Edward, who would go on later to be the Black Prince. Roger Mortimer's position was now weakened and highly precarious, and after pressure was placed on Edward by the nobility to act against Mortimer, he hatched a plan to seize power and claim back his birthright. Mortimer and Isabella were then captured at Nottingham Castle in October 1330, and despite his mother's pleas that her lover's life should be spared, Edward, out of revenge for his father's own death, and to appease the barons, had Mortimer hanged at Tyburn in London. With Mortimer's death, Edward had prevented any imminent threat of him being deposed like his father, and he had also appeased the English nobility who approved of his decisive action. During the wars and subsequent defeats to the Scots over the previous decades, 
the country had taken large portions of northern England as recompense in various peace treaties. This resulted in various northern landowners, known as the Disinherited, losing their estates and property to the Scots, which was a cause of great resentment amongst them. They then took it upon themselves to invade Scotland, along with various Scottish rebels, and seized power in the country. They then installed Edward Balliol, son of the former King of Scotland, John Balliol, as King, instead of David II, who was the son and heir of Robert the Bruce. Edward I had backed John Balliol and made him King of Scotland decades before, resulting in infighting in the Scottish nobility. Robert the Bruce eventually seized power in Scotland and defeated Edward II's armies at the Battle of Bannockburn, largely securing Scotland as an independent nation for another 400 years, and he is still considered a hero in Scotland to this very day. Despite Edward Balliol being installed as King of Scots, David II's forces soon regained the ascendancy and expelled Balliol from the country. He then appealed to Edward III for aid and Edward marched an army north and laid siege to the border town of Berwick-on-Tweed, and then defeated a numerically superior Scottish army under Archibald Douglas at the Battle of Halidon Hill in July 1333. Edward had secured England's northern border for a time, as neither the English or the Scots were able to defeat the other decisively, and then a peace treaty was signed in 1338, Another reason for the treaty with Scotland was the growing threat of France. Scotland and France had been in an alliance since 1295 in order to contain the threat from England. The French had started to conduct raids on ports and towns in southern England, promoting widespread rumours of a possible full-scale invasion. Philip VI of France then began to seize England's territories such as the Duchy of Aquitaine and the County of Pontefleur. Edward was now in a tricky situation. He could either let the King of France do as he wanted and risk weakening his own position as monarch, or on the other hand take the also risky step of going to war with the French, simultaneously risking an attack from the Scots in the north. Edward decided that he could not afford to back down, fearing his father's own fate, and took the bold move of claiming the French throne, which was rejected out of hand and the stage was now set for the conflict which would become known to history as the Hundred Years' War. One of the imminent dangers posed to England by the French was their fleet. This consisted largely of galleys, which were highly manoeuvrable and fast ships. These craft enabled the French to cross the English Channel quickly and conduct the raids on southern England as previously mentioned. The English, however, did not possess galleys, relying instead on more bulky vessels called cogs. These were single-sailed ships, often used by merchants for trading, ranging from 50 to 80 feet in length, and could carry as much as 200 tons as cargo. Edward requisitioned these ships in large numbers to contain the French fleet and stop their trans-channel raids, and also the threat of them invading England altogether. He assembled his new fleet in the River Orwell in Suffolk, which is the river which runs through modern-day Ipswich. Edward's flagship was called the Thomas, and he set sail at the head of his fleet on the 22nd of June 1340, crossing the channel towards the modern-day Netherlands town of Sluys. 
arriving on the 24th of June. He had planned to sail up the river from Slois and conduct raids in the area which is modern-day Belgium. The French knew this, however, and positioned their fleet in the mouth of the river Zwin to stop Edward's advance. After conducting a reconnaissance mission of the French Armada, Edward's forces attacked the massive French fleet, which consisted of over 200 ships, whilst Edward's fleet consisted of 120 to 150 ships. He did, however, have the advantage that the French were at anchor and could not manoeuvre to counter the English. The battle which followed can in many ways be considered as a land battle at sea. The English archers would pepper the decks of the French galleys with arrows, then men-at-arms would rush aboard and secure the French vessels. The result of the Battle of Sluis was the total defeat of the French, who suffered massive losses and lost nearly all their vessels to the English as a result. With the channel now secured, Edward stood down the navy, but founded a basic naval administration in the coming years, which in some ways can be considered as a foundation of what was to become the Royal Navy. Then, in 1346, Edward decided to go on the offensive against the French, and launched a 15,000 strong raid on Normandy. His army sacked the city of Caen, and then marched east to meet up with other English forces in the Flanders region, but they were pursued by a 20 to 30,000 strong French army led by King Philip VI himself. Edward, at first, decided not to offer battle, but then, after finding favourable ground near the small French town of Cressy in northeastern France, he turned to face them. The English army consisted largely of Welsh and English troops, and was divided in the main between two separate groups, men-at-arms and archers. The tactics and dispositions of troops at Cressy would become the basis of all of England's successful battles in the campaign and during the Hundred Years' War. The English would stay in a fixed position, often on high ground, with their flanks covered by marshes or forest, and allow the enemy to come to them. Whilst the French were trudging through mud or fields towards the English, they would have to deal with a hail of arrows fired by the English using the longbow. A powerful and effective weapon, the longbow had originated in Wales, and its devastating accuracy and rate of fire had impressed English kings such as Edward I so much that it was pressed into service in English armies. This later resulted in the English basing their armies and strategy around the use of the longbow to devastating effect in the early to middle stages of the Hundred Years' War. Estimates suggest that at the Battle of Cressy, the English deployed nearly 7,000 longbowmen, and given that these archers were trained to shoot 20 arrows a minute, this means that at the battle, the English could fire a potential 140,000 arrows a minute at the advancing French cavalry and infantry. Considering that the French army totaled between 20 and 30,000 troops, it is little wonder that after a few hours the French were in a full-scale retreat. The tactics Edward had used at Cressy and the power of the longbow became the backbone of England's initial success during the Hundred Years' War, but by the mid-15th century the French had started to use Italian mercenaries equipped with Milanese armour, 
which was strong enough to withstand a shot from a longbow. This together with the increasing use of cannon and guns in the 15th century, and the steadily increasing instability in England in the lead up to the War of the Roses, resulted, eventually, in the French taking back the vast majority of the English gains in France, and would lead to them eventually winning the Hundred Years' War. Edward was riding high after his victory at Cressy, but his fortunes were about to improve yet again. The Scots had agreed to come to the aid of France in accordance with their alliance with them, and they then launched an invasion of Northern England. The French had appealed to King David of Scotland to intervene earlier, but he was aware of Edward's forces in southern England and delayed attacking the country until Edward and the main bulk of his army had left for France, thinking that he would meet little resistance. Edward had foreseen this, however, and had prepared for a Scottish invasion. Once King David started his invasion of England, a small English army was raised in the Yorkshire town of Richmond under the command of the Archbishop of York, William de la Zouche, and accompanied by Lord Ralph Neville and Lord Henry Percy. The Scots were unaware of the English preparations, and stumbled across the English army outside the city of Durham on the morning of the 17th of October, 1346. The English took their usual defensive stance, but after the Scots failed to attack them, Longbowmen were sent forward and their fire forced the Scots to choose between withdrawal or attacking. They chose to attack despite the English arrows and their enemy's favourable position, and bitter fighting ensued. By the early evening, however, the Scots were forced to retreat, and during the rout, King David himself was captured by the English. Now knowing that his northern border was secure, Edward laid siege to Calais, which lasted for nearly a year before the town surrendered. Calais would remain in English hands until the reign of Henry VIII and would be England's last territory in mainland France. In 1348, Edward founded the Order of the Garter, which was a chivalric order or title which the king bestowed on no more than 24 subordinates. The concept was largely based on the legend of King Arthur's Round Table, and in many ways the founding of the Order of the Garter was a political move by Edward to help him secure the loyalty of his barons and nobles, who would often be accepted into the Order after proving their loyalty to him, and the Order of the Garter is still in existence to this very day. Edward was now at the zenith of his power, and was feared and respected throughout the known world, but his reign was destined to go into a downward spiral from this point on, as circumstances beyond his control started to come into play. The Black Death, or Bubonic Plague, had by this time swept across Europe and now arrived in England, being carried by two sailors who landed at Weymouth Dorset in June 1348. This pandemic quickly spread across the country, being carried by fleas whose bites would infect the victim with the Yersinia pestis bacteria. These bacteria would then spread to the lymph nodes, which are small oval-shaped organs throughout the body, which help filter foreign bodies and cancers. Then, when established in the lymph nodes, pus-filled buboes would form, and the bacteria would then spread into the bloodstream and throughout the body, resulting in organ failure and death within a few days. However, people at the time had no idea that rat-borne fleas were the cause of the pandemic, 
and were reduced to concluding that the widespread deaths meant that mankind was being punished for its sins, or even that the end of days was nigh. Imagine if you can seeing your nearest and dearest die a slow and painful death and having no idea of how to help them or what the cause might be. Total despair and fear were rife. Indeed, it is difficult for us in the modern world to understand what an apocalyptic event the Black Death was. Estimates state that the number of deaths in England alone were between 40 and 60% of the population, over 3 million people out of a total population of 6 million. And Edward himself was personally affected by the Black Death, as his daughter, Joan, died of the infection in Bordeaux in 1348, whilst travelling to marry Peter of Castile. Despite the widespread chaos, government did not break down, and Edward and his officials were able to restrict the damage done by taking preventative measures. Mass graves were quickly dug and the victims were buried, restricting the chances of infection, and with the onset of winter, the fleas being killed by the cold, the crisis largely ended. During the mid-1350s, Edward reignited his military operations on the continent, which culminated in the Prince of Wales, Edward the Black Prince, winning his brilliant victory over the French at the Battle of Poitiers, in which, much like Cressy, the English defeated a larger French army under the command of the new king, John II, and captured him after the battle. The Black Prince was by now a national hero, and feared and respected throughout Europe, King Edward could have been forgiven for feeling a great sense of pride and satisfaction that his son and heir was such an able commander and that he held the love and affection of his people. He would have undoubtedly been a great king in his own right had he had lived to claim the throne. But sadly for him and for the country as a whole, the Black Prince died of dysentery in 1376, aged just 45. The later years of King Edward's life and reign were not nearly as successful as his early reign. As the king got older, he handed over the running of the country and the military to his nobles and to his children. But another notable achievement in his reign were the reforms to the English Parliament, culminating in the Good Parliament of 1376, in which the Crown's expenses were placed under greater scrutiny and the king's councillors were replaced. This was a result of a nationwide perception that the King's advisers were corrupt. Parliament then demanded greater scrutiny of royal expenses, which was very popular amongst the people, as Edward's wars had been paid for by taxation of the populace. However, the real power at this point in English history lay not with the House of Commons, but instead with the House of Lords, who made all the major decisions. The Commons were consisted at this time by Knights of the Shire, representing rural constituencies, and the burgesses which came largely from the towns. These burgesses outnumbered the knights of the shire, but as the knights were landowners and had connections of the aristocracy, they had greater political influence and were paid more to attend parliament than the burgesses. In many ways, the commons at this time was a conduit through which landowners and even peasants could petition parliament with their concerns and problems. The good parliament of Edward III's reign was the greatest example yet of the commons holding the peerage and the king to account. However, 
the reforms of the good parliament were largely reversed for a time, as it had powerful opponents such as King Edward's own son, John of Gaunt. Nevertheless, the power of the House of Commons got stronger over the years, and it held the nobility and successive English kings to account, until in the 17th and 18th century, the Commons would not only take precedence over the House of Lords, but also the monarch. The gradual erosion of the power of the nobility in England over the centuries was a result of it often needing money in wars, and the more money the lords, and indeed the monarch, demanded of the population, the greater the discontent and counter-demands became from the commons to have a greater say in governance. Although perhaps rightly, England and later Britain was seen as an aggressive warlike nation, there is no doubt that modern Western democracy's birthplace was in England, and without it, it is highly doubtful that there would be any representative democracy in the Western world today. Therefore, Edward III's concessions were an important chapter in England becoming more democratic. King Edward had obviously been greatly affected by the loss of his son, and had also lost his wife, Queen Philippa, in 1369. This resulted in him becoming more isolated and insular in the later part of his reign, and he increasingly had less and less to do with the day-to-day -day running of the country. His health then went into a steady decline, and after a period of illness, the old king passed away from a stroke at Sheen Palace in Richmond, London, on the 5th of July, 1377, aged 64. Sadly, Edward III's children and grandchildren would one day argue over their rights to the English throne, resulting in the houses of York and Lancaster fighting over the crown in the War of the Roses. In the end, everything that Edward and his forebears had fought for was lost, and the Plantagenet dynasty and the War of the Roses ended in Henry Tudor defeating Richard III in the Battle of Bosworth in 1485. Edward III is not to blame for any of this, however, as it is highly likely that the War of the Roses wouldn't have happened if the Black Prince had lived. In my opinion, everything Edward III was able to foresee and effect in his reign was addressed with an energy, intelligence and skill that very few of his predecessors and successors could match. In researching this video, I have read certain articles and books which state that Edward III was not a great king, claiming that he was a warmonger and criticising his military adventures stating that he used England and its population's wealth to man and fund his campaigns. I feel this entirely misunderstands what was expected of a medieval king of England. In order to appease the English nobles, the king had to both be strong and also reward the nobility for their loyalty. This often meant that the king would have to show his prowess in battle and in doing so would win him and his nobles greater wealth, securing their loyalty. I think Edward's reign and his energy in his early years of being king was a result of his fear of what happened to his father and is also in part down to him following his grandfather's example. Many people today, even historians, often make the mistake of judging history and people in history by modern moral standards, often stupidly thinking that they would have made different decisions had they had lived at the time. 
I counter this by stating that if you had been raised in a medieval age, you would have been raised with medieval concepts of morality and values, not modern ones. This is why historical figures and people should be judged by the moral values and standards of the times they lived in. To my mind, Edward III's achievements in life by far eclipse those of any other medieval English king, and very possibly of every other English king full stop. He brought England's enemies to their knees, founded the Order of the Garter, and also founded the idea of an English national identity. As well as this, he made government more accountable, and also did his best to help his subjects during the horror of the Black Death which is in terms of the percentage of the population which died, the largest tragedy that ever occurred in English and European history. I find it extraordinary and really rather sad that King Edward III is largely forgotten in England today, as in my own humble opinion he is England's greatest ever king, and this is why I dedicate this video to his everlasting memory.